listeners, and welcome to the 16th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take ourselves about as seriously as we do our chances of being selected in the first round of the NFL Draft. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I'm back by myself this week with a quiet studio and an intimate setting for you and I to catch up. So, how's your week been? Yeah, mine's been mine's been pretty rough, too. Adulting is hard sometimes, and although I try to make this podcast a priority, I do have a full-time job and a side photography and marketing consulting business that both had me exceptionally occupied this week. I actually sat down to write and record the show on Thursday and found myself nodding off while writing about the North North American Free Trade Agreement, so my wife quite rightly suggested I call it a day. Since this podcast is brought to you by nobody in particular... Paying customers and sleep come first, so I hope you don't mind. Uh, Anyway, it was good catching up, but there's a lot to get through this week, so let's kick it off with the news. First up this week, Ford found themselves in a bit of a sticky situation, and by that I mean the Snoop Dogg kind of sticky, icky situation. Uh, apparently between February and March of this year, about 1,100 pounds of the Mary Jane was discovered hidden in the trunks of at least 22 new Ford Fusions that were made in Mexico. The weed was about worth uh, $1.4 million, and these are being discovered in Minneapolis, of all places, uh, where the cars are coming off of rail transport with the drugs being discovered inside the spare tire wells of the vehicles. Um, Speculation is that the drugs are being loaded into the cars at the assembly plants in Mexico after final inspection, but obviously before being loaded onto the rail cars for transport into the U.S., The thing is, I'm not sure who the worst actor is in this whole scenario. You have Ford for having a drug cartel member apparently able to access their assembled fusions, border security for not inspecting well enough to catch millions of dollars worth of weed getting into the country, or the flaky drug mules on this side of the border who are presumably too stoned to remember that, oh, they didn't have something to do today? Ah, man... Um, there are a lot of things about this whole situation that need fixing. Uh, in an unrelated note, I I need to go grab something from my wife's trunk real quick. Uh, so, uh, remember how I devoted several episodes to talking about how Trump's plan to impose a huge border adjustment tax or tariff on Mexican goods would basically destroy the small car market in the U.S. by killing off any margins manufacturers make on those vehicles? Well, he either listened to me or, more likely, he realized what a good deal NAFTA actually is and why it was ever implemented in the first place and has backed off his plan to exit the North American Free Trade Agreement and impose taxes on Mexican or Canadian goods. It's generally agreed across party lines that exiting NAFTA would drive up the cost of goods for both consumers and companies, and it was said that it would cost automakers billions in a time when Trump is promising to make businesses business easier for everyone. Um, and these are definitely competing ideals, which is why it only makes sense for him to back off the threat of leaving NAFTA. Um, Trump is apparently still set on renegotiating the deal, so time will tell if... 
Canada and Mexico were actually shaking in their boots over his threat or if they basically effectively called his bluff. Man, politics is so fun. Um, anyway, Kia Motors is going to invest about $1.1 billion in a new plant in India, which by 2019 it hopes to be churning out 300,000 cars per year. Hyundai, uh, Kia's parent company, already makes around 650,000 cars per year in India, but stiff import penalties mean Kia's brought into India would have been very expensive, which obviously doesn't make sense for Kia, which is Hyundai's budget brand. India is a, a really hot developing market with a population ready to snap up in expensive cars, as Tata has shown. So Kia is making a smart move here and should be able to capitalize on, on a really growing market. Tesla uh, was in the news several times this week, and mostly for not positive reasons. Um, first, it came out that Tesla has offered to offered pay raises and job guarantees to Groman Engineering, a supplier in Germany that Tesla bought in November, in order to prevent those workers from striking. Unfortunately for Tesla, this still may may not be enough, with workers claiming to be making. 25 to 30% less than industry-wide collective bargaining agreement for metalworkers dictates. Klaus Grohlmann, the founder of the company, left abruptly, uh, lending further chaos uh, at the manufacturer, and nobody is sure quite how this whole thing is going to shake out just yet. Uh, meanwhile, at home in the U.S., at their Fremont, California assembly plant, four separate charges were filed this week, with the National Labor Relations Board accusing Tesla of illegally surveilling and coercing workers seeking unionization. Workers there have been alleging unfair working conditions, and CEO Elon Musk has been arguing that unionization would be counter to Tesla's mission, which uh, I assume is to make him filthy rich. Uh, the United Auto Workers have apparently been eyeing the factory since June, and have been putting feelers out there to see how employees feel about unionizing, which the whole thing puts a real sketchy spin on it. I mean, if Tesla workers are underpaid or are forced to work in poor working conditions, then yes, they definitely need to have their needs and rights addressed. But the fact that the UAW makes their money off of membership dues and the workers they represent, so them reaching out to workers at Tesla just screams of self-service rather than of legitimate concern over the workers' well-being. In any case, uh, we'll have to wait 7 to 12 weeks to find out what the NLRB is going to do about it, if anything at all. Um, also this week, though, Tesla announced the recall of 53,000 Model S and X vehicles for potential parking brake failure, which could leave the car permanently stuck in park if a small gear breaks off and gets stuck. Um, now, this is a far cry from some of the other recalls for brake failure that we've seen, uh, where the vehicle becomes stuck in not park, like uh, the Jeep uh, recall where their car actually uh, struck and crushed Star Trek actor Anton Yelchin to death. Uh, so it's definitely not the worst news for the brand, but a recall is never great to have on the books. In actually scary Tesla news this week, uh, there's a story of a couple who had to be pulled from their Model X uh, after the Falcon doors failed to open in a crash. This happened in China. Uh, they could apparently hear the lithium-ion batteries in the car exploding below them, 
but couldn't get out through their doors and had to be pulled out the front of the vehicle. Um, the driver's airbag also apparently didn't deploy, and the other car involved in the incident also caught fire, to which Tesla replied something along the, on, along the lines of, see, it wasn't just our car. Um, it still doesn't explain how their doors stayed jammed shut, potentially leaving passengers in a fiery egg-shaped coffin. Uh, there's apparently a release handle on the inside of the door that will open in case of an emergency, and it's not clear if the owner knew about it or not, but that is in the owner's manual, and the owner was the one sitting in the back seat, so she definitely should have known about it. Um, what is clear is that the owner is seeking $1.1 million from Tesla because of this whole thing, which the company has absolutely no interest in paying her. Um, Tesla has also been sued this week by some buyers for their autopilot software, which, according to the complaint, had uh, them become, quote, beta testers of a half-baked software that renders Tesla vehicles dangerous, end quote. Uh, this isn't the first complaint against autopilot, uh, either the technology or the name, which uh, many people have suggested indicates more capabilities than the software actually has. Uh, this, however, is seeking class action status, which has the potential to bring serious money problems for the company. In good news, though, Tesla say it's planning on doubling its supercharger network to 10,000 superchargers and 15,000 destination charging connections. Uh, this means that more than two, do two dozen Teslas will be able to charge simultaneously at some stations in busier areas, and they're also expanding their network along existing paths, uh, or existing routes, rather, uh, allowing for charging closer to destinations at differing intervals for people who don't want to spend an hour in Indianapolis, for instance, and would rather spend it in Terre Haute, which, hint, nobody does. Um, but Elon Musk has also stated that uh, we should expect from Tesla an all-electric pickup to debut uh, sometime in the next two years, and that's going to come after a fully electric semi-truck, which he expects to debut in September. Uh, an electric semi would be fantastic since the diesel-powered vehicles are some of the road's worst polluters and aren't at all regulated, so providing a clean option would be a potential game-changer. But they're not the only ones looking at semis. Toyota has partnered with the California Air Resources Board and the Port Authority of L.A. on a feasibility study of a hydrogen fuel cell big rig. Uh, now, rather than design their own truck, though, Toyota has outfitted a normal-looking Kentworth uh, T660, uh, which I am told is not a Terminator. Uh, Toyota has filled what normally would have been the sleeper cab area uh, with high-pressure hydrogen tanks and has installed two fuel cell stacks and a motor that provides approximately the same horsepower and torque as a normal rig. Uh, being an EV with instant torque, it accelerates a lot quicker than a standard diesel rig, but that's about it for the advantages. Uh, carrying a full 60,000-pound payload Range is just about 150 miles, or just more than a tenth of what you would get with a diesel-powered truck getting 5 miles per gallon. Uh, refilling also uh, is apparently a weakness and takes a while. Toyota is hoping to get that down to 30 or 40 minutes, which still seems like a long time. Uh, they'll be using the truck for deliveries within about a 70-mile radius uh, of, I guess, uh, the... 
uh, port authority. Um, for, so that's the type of range where this tech would be useful in the first place. On long hauls, I think we'll still have to bear witness to the giant trucks belching out big plumes of black smoke and waking us up in the middle of the night when Jake breaking downhill. Um, other news this month, although the month isn't quite over yet, um, and it is going to be May, uh, according to uh, Justin Timberlake, uh, and analysts are already predicting April will be the fourth consecutive month of lower sales than the year before, which has started getting some of the most optimistic industry people out there a little worried. Uh, LMC Automotive, which originally forecast 2017 as another record-setting year after records were broken in 2016 and 2015, has had another look and said, well, on second thought, maybe not. Uh, a sales decline this year, which now looks probab probable, would be the first down year since 2009, but auto manufacturers aren't going down without a fight. Incentive spending has risen about 13%, or up to $460 per vehicle on average. Um, this year, through the first half of April, according to J.D. Power & Associates, the data uh, provider for LMC's forecast, the increase has cost automakers a combined $1.9 billion more this year than in the same period of 2016. But Inventory on dealer lots remains at record levels, and almost a third of vehicles are taking more than 90 days to sell. And if you've ever worked in a dealership before, uh, I've been told that 45 is really the maximum number of days you want to have a vehicle on your lot. So twice that long um, is what it's taking about a third of cars to sell, which is crazy. Dealers are making less money on cars, which means they're having to rely more on their service departments to make up the revenue. And... Fortunately for them, lots of cars are needing repairs. Service fees now account for almost half of a dealership's revenue, and that number continues to climb as new car sales decrease in both number and margin. Dealers are paying an average of $69,000 a year to keep salespeople, um, which reminds me, I need to go get a job as a car salesman. <laughs> Um, General Motors this week uh, announced the shutdown of operations at their plant in Venezuela after they said the government illegally seized the plant. Around 2,700 employees were notified, some via text message, uh, that they no longer had a job. They also received some sort of severance pay that apparently didn't amount to much of anything. Uh, there are some really mixed reports out there about what actually happened in this scenario, some claiming that Venezuela didn't at all expropriate the plant, and that instead GM closed down suddenly amid a 17-year-old lawsuit between the company and one or some of its dealers in the country. Uh, GM actually hadn't made a single car in Venezuela for more than a year, so I, I guess those 2,700 employees that lost their jobs didn't really have much of a job in the first place. Um... But what's certain here is that Venezuela, a failing state, uh, doesn't make any sense for any car companies to be in. There have basically been no new car sales, and the company's economy, or the country's economy, excuse me, has been an absolute freefall as the country's political system is falling apart. Uh, Ford and Mitsubishi both have plants in the country as well, 
but they have been idled for some time, and analysts suspect that they and other companies with operations in the country could stop paying idled employees and cut their losses, just abandoning the country for more stable South American assets. So regardless of GM's motives for the plant closure, they certainly seem to be better off than they were before, so time will tell if others will follow, and uh, I suspect they will. Um, now, we have so much to get through this week. I'm going to try something new and do just a series of quick hits about some of the uh, less involved stories that happened this week. So here you go, some quick hits. Toyota Motor North America is recalling about 228,000 2016 and 2017 Toyota Tacoma midsize pickups in the U.S. because their rear differentials may leak oil. Uh, just because the trucks are indestructible doesn't mean they're infallible, so if you have one, go get yours checked out. Toyota has also issued a technical service bulletin for its Highlander and Sienna models, which allows owners to update the software that controls their 8-speed transmissions. Apparently, shifts in early models with this transmission had been revving high before shifting, creating a lot of bloody racket and worrying owners that something was wrong with their car when, in fact, something was wrong with the people who programmed the software. Since it's not actually a recall, owners are not being notified. Instead, Toyota is relying on podcasters with dwindling audiences to get the word out there. So there you go. Uh, another thing Toyota got wrong was the popularity of their Lexus NX vehicle, which is a compact crossover, which slots in below the RX and which we all know is the wealthy soccer mom's vehicle of choice. Turns out they have been selling more than twice as many NXs as they originally planned and are having to ramp up production because you bastards simply can't get enough compact crossovers. Honestly, apart from the stupid Nike swoosh split headlights, the vehicle looks really cool, has good power, is very luxurious, and undercuts offerings from Mercedes, BMW, and Audi on price, so perhaps it's not surprising to anyone that they're moving so many out of their dealerships. How this will change when the Buick Regal Tour X launches with all of its wagon majesty remains to be seen. Faraday Future has been sued again, uh, this time by an electric bicycle company called Faraday for trademark infringement, which seems pretty legit given that it is a vehicle, albeit two-wheeled vehicle, manufacturer with the word Faraday in its name. Faraday Future just can't seem to catch a break, and maybe they shouldn't, given it sounds like they are managed just like hot garbage. For those of you with weeks since Faraday Future was last sued, number boards around your house, time to reset that to zero. We may have forgotten all about Dieselgate briefly last week, but the scandal is definitely not quite over for Volkswagen, who pled guilty last month to conspiracy to commit fraud, obstruction of justice, and entry of goods by false statements. This week, a U.S. judge ordered VW to pay a $2.8 billion fine, uh, criminal fine as a result of a deal with the Department of Justice, which follows other fines from the EPA, California Air Resources Board, and a class action lawsuit forced the company to spend $15 billion on remediation and buybacks. VW is hoping that this is surely the beginning of the end for this whole thing and they can get on with building the electric cars they've been showing over the last couple of years. Volkswagen is also looking at selling the motorcycle brand Ducati, which nobody but Ferdinand Ph. quite understands why they bought in the first place. Um, this could net them about $1.5 bucks, which would be a decent chunk of change to fill that big diesel gate-shaped hole in their books. 
Speaking of holes in books, Fiat has been accused of invoicing dealers in Europe for cars that they did not order, didn't want, and can't sell. If you're wondering why they would do this, consider that Fiat Chrysler is a publicly owned company and that their cars are, generally speaking, crap, and nobody wants to buy them. In order to keep shareholders happy and to give the impression of the company is being successful, they need to look like dealers are gobbling up their cars, thus excessive invoicing. This comes after Fiat was caught last year moving vehicles from a dealer's inventory to its demo fleet and reporting the transaction as a sale, then essentially returning the cars to the dealers at the beginning of next month, inflating sales figures to keep investor confidence high. They were forced to alter years' worth of sales figures. Now, if Fiat put the same effort into making good, interesting cars that they do into their creative accounting, they might not even have to lie all the damn time. Motorcyclists in Louisiana have apparently been getting hassled by the cops for wearing helmets because of an old law that prevents faces from being masked except for on Mardi Gras, Halloween, or for religious reasons. Miraculously, lawmakers in the state have introduced a rational bill that will repeal the law and stop bikers from getting fined for being safe. So congratulations on unbackwarding yourself at least a little bit, Louisiana. Waymo, Google's self-driving car project, is expanding its fleet from 100 to 600 autonomous Chrysler Pacificas and will start opening up the program to a broader public use in Arizona, where there are few laws restricting companies from testing self-driving vehicles. Google says that rather than giving the program participants one or two rides a day, they want to have the program open to these people as much as possible to see how participants use it and how the cars cope with a variety of different transportation tasks. If you live in Phoenix, you can apply on uh, to be part of the program on Waymo's website. Just beware that when Skynet goes live, you will have helped doom humanity. So good job. Uh, Honda's new Civic Type R has set a new Nurburgring lap record for production front-wheel drive cars, beating the previous ho- holder, the Volkswagen Golf GTI Club Sport S, by 5.41 seconds, and beating the old Type R by 7 seconds. This is the end of the story because no one cares. Chinese auto manufacturer GAC Motor, which I assume is not pronounced GAC Motor, but I could be wrong, has decided to take another stab at naming its flagship brand after some less than positive reaction at the Shanghai Auto Show. The company showed off several vehicles originally slated to be released, be released under the trump brand, but noted the sheer hilarity with which some American visitors at the show greeted the name and the negative brand association with America's current president, whose approval ratings are hovering just above the bottom of the toilet bowl. This, of course, reminds everyone of Saab, the Finnish car manufacturer who was forced to change their name when the company launched in 1949 because the originally selected name, Hitlerski, had some pretty poor regional associations at the time, too. Uh, The 2017 Automotive Brand Intimacy Report from MBLM, a company I've never heard of, uh, was released this week, and all of the company of all the companies that sell motor vehicles, Harley Davidson wound up on top of the pack, winning the male 35 to 44 year old demographic, and less surprisingly, the 45 to 64 year old category. BMW, Toyota, and Honda followed them in the brand intimacy rankings, and while BMW and Honda both make bikes, it certainly seems like a real coup for a company that only makes motorcycles to win this. At the same time, go up to anyone in a Harley-Davidson shirt and ask them about their bike, and it'll be pretty obvious why Harley-Davidson won. Just be sure you have a few hours to spare before asking them. 
Are normal Mercedes-Benz dealerships too tame and peasant-like for you? Well, good news, the three-pointed star has begun launching AMG-only showrooms, with the first in Tokyo and another likely to pop up in London soon. Globally, AMG sales have been up 44%, so Mercedes certainly sees the opportunity to grow the performance sub-brand, and standalone dealerships will certainly offer buyers a more specialized experience. We'll see if they start expanding these into the U.S., but I would not be surprised. Mercedes competitor BMW is not following suit in adding M-branded dealerships. Instead, they will announce this week that they are going to install 100 electric vehicle charging points in national parks across the United States. Sites will be determined by various factors, including demand and distance from other charging points, and they've already installed the first inside Thomas Edison National Historic Park in New Jersey, because everybody wants to go to New Jersey! Uh, finally this week, police in a small Australian mining town pulled over an SUV with a damaged and dragging rear bumper only to find a 12-year-old boy behind the wheel. Uh, even more amazing than a kid driving the car is that he was more than 800 miles from his home in New South Wales, which of course means he stopped for gas at least once along his journey and didn't manage to be stopped until some cops with nothing better to do finally got to him. No word on what his punishment will be, but I think it's safe to say he's grounded until he's legally able to drive, and probably sometime after that. Now let's look at some of the new cars that debuted this week. Some of you may know the name Fisker from the range-extended hybrid vehicle called the Karma that was produced in 2011 and 2012. It was a cool-looking car, but the performance was somewhat underwhelming, and they'd occasionally come over all Italian and catch fire, despite not at all being Italian. Well, now Fisker has introduced a new car, albeit only with some photos. Uh, it's called the Emotion, and uh, again, it's going to be a premium sedan, but will be all-electric, featuring what they call game-changing batteries that last longer, charge faster, and have better range than the competitors. Uh, this will compete with the Tesla Model S, and uh, it's a really different-looking car uh, with the cabin pushed really far forward and the hood lowered down. Sort of looks like an old, uh, f well, looks, looks like a four-door Lamborghini Diablo, um, but with a more traditional rear end that obviously doesn't have to accommodate a big honking B10. Uh, Henrik Fisker also designed the, the Aston Martin DB9 and the BMW Z8, so you know that this car looks good but time will tell if it actually has the performance to back up those looks or if it's just more vaporware. Um, and uh, something really special, special for listeners of mine uh, came from BMW this week. Um, I hear you when you say that you aren't done with diesels despite Volkswagen's best efforts, and I hear you when you say you love the Bugatti Veyron and Chiron, but that you want the same number of turbochargers without that, all that excessive style. Well, uh, great news for uh, for all two of you. Uh, BMW has come through with your perfect vehicle. Uh, the new 550D is a 3-liter liter six-cylinder engine featuring four turbochargers. That's 1.5 cylinders per turbo. You want power? Oh, there's power. Almost 400 horsepower and a crazy 561 foot-pounds of torque. You want wagon? You got wagon. This will avail be available as a sedan, too, um, if you're one of the few people out there buying sedans. You want it in America? Well, up yours, stupid Americans. 
Um, well, that's what BMW says, not me. Uh, instead, BMW uh, says, how about this shiny new M4 Club Sport? Uh, the coupe has 454 horsepower, and we'll see a limited production run of two or 300, and it's the most powerful version of the M4 yet, and features various aerodynamic en- enhancements to increase downforce, as well as some lightweight bits to make it more nimble. It'll apparently do the sprint to 60 miles an hour in less than four seconds, which should be plenty of fast for almost anyone who has more than 100 grand to drop on this puppy. So go ahead and enjoy it, you rich bastards. Um, Finally, Chevy debuted this week the catchy-named FNRX, which apparently stands for Find New Roads X. It's like a Camaro and an Acura ZDX had a baby, and that baby also had a plug-in hybrid powertrain, um, which you probably shouldn't try to visualize. Uh, since it's a crossover and that's all people buy anymore, it'll probably go on sale. It'll probably sell well. So expect to see another awkward vehicle bastardization in your neighbor's driveway very soon. Uh, in obituaries this week, it's not actually an obituary, um, but certainly the end of a motorsports era. Dale Earnhardt Jr. announced his retirement from NASCAR at the end of this season, marking the end to his 18 years of racing in the sport. I can't say that I've ever been a real fan of NASCAR or really followed this sport all that closely, but I have seen many interviews with drivers over the years, and Dale always impressed with his knowledge and humility, and he's been an outspoken advocate for better concussion care in motorsports, which is really nice to have a big name behind. He was voted NASCAR's most popular driver a record 14 times, which surely indicates how well he's liked among fans and fellow drivers. So it'll be sad not to have his name on the grid next season. Now let's jump into our deep dive. As I'm sure you've noticed, many of the new cars I cover from both auto shows and otherwise are trending more electric than gasoline, or especially diesel. Uh, This week, two of the four cars discussed were designed from the ground up as EVs, and this is a trend we'll probably continue seeing as manufacturers pursue higher average fuel economy standards, regardless if the goals change under the current administration. EVs are an appealing alternative to gas vehicles for many buyers, for whom cost is not a primary motivator in vehicle selection. Incentives certainly help the price sensitive with the $7,500 tax incentive available nationwide and some states offering even more money on top of that. This isn't the same as receiving an actual discount on the car, but it's enough to push some buyers across the line and pay more for a Chevy Bolt than for the remarkably similar but gas-powered Cruze, which is 20 grand less. While those incentives disappear once each manufacturer reaches its 200,000th electric vehicle sale, development cost savings could help reduce the price. Batteries are far and away the most expensive aspect of EVs, and battery cost is decreasing rapidly, according to Bloomberg, Bloomberg by 20% every year. This, they say, means that the manufacturing cost of electric vehicles will fall below that of internal combustion cars by 2026, less than 10 years away. This is the same time that Ford and several other companies expect to have fully autonomous vehicles driving us to and from work every day. Even the oil companies are shaking in their boots. 
Total Oil announced this week that they expect oil demand to peak not in the 2050s, but in the 2030s, as electric vehicles start to make up between 15 to 30 percent of new car sales. Royal Dutch Shell is even less optimistic about their future, predicting peak oil in the late 2020s. The prospect of electric cars is certainly exciting for practical reliability and environmental reasons, but the vast majority of the models of electric vehicles we're seeing don't exactly stir the soul, especially among automotive enthusiasts. When you think of an electric vehicle, what comes to mind? Chances are it's a Toyota Prius, even though it's a hybrid, or some car that looks like a stylistic derivation thereof. The Nissan Leaf, Mitsubishi Aimea, Fiat 500e, Ford Focus Electric, Chevy Bolt, BMW i3, Hyundai Ioniq, Volkswagen Golf Electric, and Smart 4.2 Electric are all basically the same vehicle shape. A compact hatchback with a funky modern interior, capable of traveling between 40 and 250 miles, and reducing your need to stop at the gas station, except for when you're craving a Monster Energy T. Tesla's Model S and X are outliers, but exceedingly expensive ones, and even then, they're a sedan in an awkward, egg-shaped pile of ugly. All of this, presumably, led Autocar this week to ask, is the EV killing the performance car? Obviously, the Model S's insanity mode, you get some killer acceleration figures, but it's a heavy car due to all those batteries, which drastically affects its handling. And I think Elon Musk himself would agree that calling the Model S a performance car would be pretty inappropriate. It certainly performs well during acceleration, but its function is not to thrill the driver, but rather to provide a luxurious, gas-free driving option. But is this what our future holds for us? Electric vehicles that merely exist to get us from A to B, but not to put smiles on our faces? And where are all the electric performance cars? The truth is there aren't that many on the horizon. Mercedes-Benz, Audi, Porsche, and BMW have all shown that they're capable of making electric performance cars, and someday maybe we'll see them start showing up in fancy parking lots in rich parts of town, but I'll almost certainly never be able to afford an R8 e-tron or SLS e-drive. Last week I was excited to cover the MG e-Motion, a small two-door electric sports car slightly larger than a Miata, and although we'll probably never see it on our shores, it's still a sign that at least someone is thinking about accessible electric performance cars. So is it really that bad that we haven't seen more like the e-motion? I don't think so. Truly, this is a revolutionary time for cars, and there are a lot of similarities between this time and the birth of the motor vehicle. Not the original birth back in the early 1800s, but with the birth of the moving assembly line and popularization of motor vehicle travel in the early 1900s. Like back then, what we're seeing now is many different people and companies all trying their hardest to bring to market the first generation of a new way to travel. Sure, we've had cars for a long time now, but early motor vehicle models from manufacturers throughout Europe were based on modified horse buggies, so in development, progress is always made from familiar reference points. On Henry Ford's Model T production line between 1913 and 1926, they made basically the same car with small variations, and all of them came in just one color, Japan black, because it was the only paint that would dry fast enough with the speed at which Ford was cranking out new vehicles to meet the demand. While demand for electric vehicles isn't quite as ravenous, Many car companies are cranking out new vehicles as fast as their developmental cycle allows to ensure that they get a piece of the pie 
and aren't left behind when the market begins to transition more quickly away from internal combustion engines. What this has gotten us, for the most part, are vehicles that are similar to one another, not because those will be the only options available, but because those are the best starting point for cars to master electric vehicle development and production. We're already starting to see some variation in the market arise, with Volkswagen, Chevrolet, Toyota, and others debuting electric crossovers, which align with what aligns with what the current vehicle market demands. Sports or performance cars have always been niche vehicles selling in small numbers, sometimes barely warranting their existence. But that doesn't mean that they'll never get made. Ford certainly didn't stop with the Model T, and in fact went on to produce one of the most thrilling and successful performance vehicles of all time with the GT40. We, as automotive enthusiasts, just need to be patient and appreciate the fact that, while there may not be many electric performance cars on the road or debuting at auto shows right now, it won't always be that way. And given the pace of development, I don't think we'll have to wait the 56 years it took Ford to get from the Model T to the GT40. So, finally this week, I want to close with our call to action. Uh, I guess it's a good thing I asked for everyone's patience last week since it took me some extra time to get this episode out this week. So today I'd like to encourage everyone to go on a bit of an adventure. This week I'll be headed to Salt Lake City for a conference for my real job, and I've been asked to be a presenter at the final session of the conference. Uh, It's got nothing to do about cars, but since the last day is on May the 4th, you can bet your ass it's got everything to do with Star Wars. Uh, In any case, I submitted an abstract to speak at this conference, not because I'm a particularly great speaker or good in front of crowds, or because I'm extroverted, despite what you may hear through your speakers. Um, I did it because it's something different that I haven't done before, and I think it'll be good for my professional development. Sure, it's kind of a lame adventure, uh, going up on stage and speaking to a bunch of people about the best practices in a very niche industry, But I'm broadening my horizons and trying to do something different. So get out there and have an adventure this week. Let me know what you did and let me know how it went. You can be sure I will report back on any wildly embarrassing things that happened to me on stage. And with that, uh, thank you for listening. And thank you to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. Uh, I inspired myself to look up some clips of the GT40 today after writing about the deep dive and came across a great clip on YouTube of about 20 GT40s racing at the 74th members meeting at the Goodwood Race Circuit. It's rare to find a clip where all the cars racing sound so similar, but in this case, that's a very, very good thing. So here, friends, is your moment of zen.